This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, August 25th, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. What is the proper use of America's might around the globe? Is the United States truly an empire, as is so often claimed, or is its role more of an umpire? And what's the difference? Elizabeth Cobbs Hoffman is author of American Umpire. We talked about the book and the film of the same name this week. You refer to Federalist Number 4 in your book as having this very unique word presented as uh, describing the role of what a federal government might do, and the word is umpire. That's right. And how did that word and how did that idea of an umpire serve us early on? Actually, just describe what the umpire does in the description that the in, in Federalist Number 4. In Federalist Number 4 and a couple of other spots in the Federalist Papers, the founders, John Jay, James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, were trying to explain why in the world you needed this federal government. And there are tons of people who thought that was a dumb idea, that it would lead to tyranny. And they were the anti-federalists. But what they were saying is that amongst a collection of states, you needed some body that could be the umpire that could play a role where they were mediating between the states and that could actually, as the phrase they used was, to compel acquiescence uh, to common rules. Because who's going to do it? You know one state will be the enforcer, so to speak. And that was a phrase that jumped out at me because I was working on a book about America's role in the world at large after World War II. And when I was debating with some students, you know, is the U.S. an empire or not? Empire with a capital E. I was saying, no, based on all my scholarship, I don't think it is. And in fact, if anything, it's more like an umpire. And then the capital U. And then I went back to the Federalist Papers and writing the book and found that that is precisely how the founders uh, envisioned the federal government vis-a-vis the states. So you can understand how that might function well. And there are many libertarians who would say, well, that's too big of a government even then, which is sort of the argument that the anti-federalists were making at the time. But to the extent that we accept the idea that the federal government has relatively functioned pretty well at that time, many people would come back to you and say, well, now the federal government is a super state over and above the states of the United States of America. Well, and of course, that's a that's an entirely separate debate. And, and one might say the same applies in US's, to the U.S. role in the larger world, that this imperial role itself is too outsized. And of course, I think one of the messages of all that is that this role is always contentious. And there are always people who think, you know, you've got too much power. To the extent the U.S. government, federal government, has played this role vis-a-vis the states, it's played it pretty cautiously. I mean, if you think of the times that the federal government has actually threatened to step across state borders and bring its army in to make states you know, abide by common rules, they're very limited. And, uh, you know, I think of Andrew Jackson and the force bill where he simply threatened it, you know, and South Carolina lined up or the American Civil War. Here's an example of the government saying, nope, you know, you cannot do X, Y, Z. And it was the bloodiest war in all American history. Civil Rights um, Acts and the enforcement of the Civil Rights, you know, Brown versus the Board of Education, for example, in places like Little Rock, Arkansas, similarly had great potential for violence. So you're right. It's a dicey role. 
And this is the concern that a lot of people have regarding the U.S. role globally as, you know, the, after the Cold War, the, the superpower that was looked to for leadership and uh, a country that tries perhaps too much to involve itself in uh, arbitrating disputes, uh, among other things. Well, in a sense, after World War II, and really because of the Cold War, not because of World War II, but because of the Cold War, the United States, in a sense, kind of put up a, a phone line, dial 911-USA in times of trouble. And that was really actually quite important. And in the, both the film and in my book, upon which the film is based, American Umpire, by Harvard Press, that you know, I make the argument that I think that this really actually played a very valuable role for a time when other countries were bombed out, when there was one single large, very well armed and a fairly aggressive state poised to do potential harm to many, many states. That was a moment where when the U.S. stepped up, I think we can actually take pride in that as Americans. The question is now that we're now 70 years out. And so is does it make sense to continue to play that role? And there have only really been two periods in American history in terms of foreign affairs. I mean, two large periods. The period for 150 years where we abided by the um, position of non-entanglement, essentially defending only our interests and nobody else's. Uh, that was Washington's great rule. And then the period of the Truman Doctrine. So now we're at the 70-year point with the Truman Doctrine, or we will be with the next president. So the question that the film tries to raise is, is it time to have this really bigger conversation, not about what's happening in Syria or what's happening in Ukraine or you know anything else, but really what are we doing and why are we doing it? How do we want to go about it? Chris Preble, uh, of course, is hosting uh, your film here at the Cato Institute. And his argument is that uh, quite often American power uh, issuing uh, guarantees of protection around the world has made the world less safe. And certainly some people argue that. I mean, I think there's a problem of expectations. When you raise people's expectations or they have them themselves, that you will always be there for them. Um, and nobody can. In fact, one of the people in our film is General Jim Mattis, a U.S. Marine Corps general, who said, America has no moral obligation to do the impossible. So I think defining what's possible and what isn't is incredibly important going forward. And I think one of the big questions on the international stage is the extent to which the international community takes responsibility for affairs within individual countries. Now, there's, it's one thing to say, okay, you know, one country can't beat up on another, one country can't do this to another, and that's what the UN was really set up to, um, to in a way, kind of regulate, right, uh, preventing any state from usurping the sovereignty of another. But nowhere in the UN Charter, initially, and in fact, there were quite strong guarantees against individual states interfering in the internal affairs of another state to make sure that it's, like, good, that everybody there is is good, because it's very, very hard to do that, and it's a violation of the whole premise of the international system going back to the Peace of Westphalia of 1648. So I think we've entered into really murky waters in the last 20 years in terms of trying to guarantee that the United States or anybody will make every country self-sufficient and peaceable. So what what you're talking about with regard to U.S. security commitments to 
the rest of the world is that we can't credibly make good on all of them, potentially. Well, right. And one reason for this, Caleb, is simply think about, you know, the United States, when Truman took on this um, commitment, which was to uh, help people under, you know, pressure from within and without, which is everything, right, that he did this in relation to the free world. Well, now the free world is actually many hundred, you know, dozens of countries more in number than they were at the time he said this. And a lot of these newer countries are small, fragile countries. Some of them have a lot of problems, um, which I understand because we were once a young, fragile country and we had a lot of problems, but we did have to solve them on our own. And um, I think that that's, that's the real issue. If you were to draw some lines, and I know that's difficult if you're trying to have a very big, broad conversation, but what are some clear principles that ought to inform this informed conversation that we ought to be having about the role of the U.S. in the world? Well, principles for conversation, of course, are a little different from where we should go. But I, I do think it's incredibly important for Americans to start engaging in a civil conversation about this, which I realize is especially hard right now because we're in the middle of a presidential election. And it's an especially contentious and volatile one, the most volatile I, can, I really know of almost in American history, except maybe going back to the year 1800. Uh, so it's a, it's a particularly tough time. Well, of course, the Civil War period would be another example of even greater volatility. But I think that the most important thing is for us to be you know, thinking outside the box. We've boxed ourselves in as a country with some very good effects, but with some effects that going forward might not be as good. So I think that we need to be thinking uh, more creatively and more profoundly. So when you say boxed ourselves in, you mean that we've issued uh, commitments to other countries or that we've issued a commitment that will be the guy to come in and help uh, arbiter these disputes? Well, we said, we'll be the guy. I mean, we did that. That's what Truman did in 1947. And the United States, to a very important extent, has succeeded in that role, which is odd. I realize that we often don't talk about our successes. We always say, well, you know, dang it, you know, we did this wrong, and we did that wrong, and we're doing this wrong. But you don't, you learn from your mistakes, but you build upon your successes. So if we want to go forward, then we have to be as honest about what we've gotten right as what we've gotten wrong. Now, I know that sounds kind of crazy. You know, most people are happy to tout their successes. But I think within scholarship, we don't do that often enough. And scholars who do do that are sometimes dismissed as, well, you know, you need to look more fundamentally at all the stuff we've gotten wrong. And, you know, I, I get it. You know, I know all the stuff we've gotten wrong. But in terms of, for example, making it safer and possible for international institutions to get established, that's something the United States has really done a pretty good job of. Uh, the creating of a forum at the United Nations for nations to get together and talk. I mean, before you had something like that, all they could do is start firing at each other. So even though some of these institutions are still basically pretty in their infancy, they've done a lot to improve the world, whether it's the World Bank or the World Trade Organization or the IMF. And again, these are the folks we love to throw mud pies at when <laughs> we're upset about things. But and that's all fair, and you know, you know it's a fair game. But we also really have to be thinking about how to make them stronger, because ultimately it is all on our back, and that's no fun. We're at a, as you mentioned, this very weird uh, election year, uh, 2016. Uh, the most important institution, I would argue, 
is trade. And we have two leading presidential candidates who sort of want to turn away from that. The United States has played, I think, a big role in expanding trade around the world. Yes. I mean, of the two, from what I understand, I think Clinton is, even though she's critical of some of the trade agreements we've had, that she's still in the tradition of keep calm and carry on in terms of American trade, um, you know, the outward looking nature of the American economy, which, by the way, you know, we talk about George Washington's great rule. I mean, you have to understand that America has never been isolationist in relation to trade. We've always been, you know, and there have been ups and downs and dips and, you know, valleys and hills and all that in relation to our trade. But we've always had an an attitude of full engagement with the rest of the world. And if you want to look at how the American economy has grown over the years, I mean, you have to look at that kind of policy. We were the first large market common economy in the world. Um, The United States had the world's largest economy in 1890, and a lot of that had to do with taking down trade barriers within, but also robust trade with others. And you can't do that if you put up walls. But I mean, in terms of the expansion of stability, around the world, trade has played, uh, I would argue, the critical role in making that happen. And I agree. I think you're absolutely right. And that was the great insight uh, of the founders of the post-World War II order. And that's why they had the GATT and why they envisioned a World Trade Organization. Because the whole idea, I mean, if you look at dictators like Hirohito and Mussolini and, and Hitler, what they told their people was that only through conquest could their nation get enough resources to be stable. And in the Great Depression, that sounded like, well, I guess so, because that's what countries have been been doing for the last millennium or so, you know, hundreds of years. And the U.S. said, no, that's not how you become either prosperous or peaceful. You do it by doing essentially what we have done, which is to take down trade barriers. In our case, amongst the, you know, then I think it was 48 states. Uh, Now it's 50 states. So I'm completely in agreement with you on that, Caleb. That's where peace comes from. I have a a friend, uh, the German historian and political science, Joseph Jaffa, who says, he's a publisher of Die Zeit, he said that the Germans finally learned that it was better to polish their BMWs than their jackboots. Elizabeth Cobbs Hoffman is author of American Umpire. Subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Google Play, and with Cato's iOS app, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.